Right. We are in uh, Hebrews 10 tonight, the back half of Hebrews 10. We were, um, yeah, we, we studied the first half of last week, and so we're starting in verse 19 uh, tonight. Um, you know this by now, all right? The theme of Hebrews um, basically is Jesus is better. And specifically, Jesus for, for this audience, for this group that, that the writer is speaking to, Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. So for this group of Jewish Christians, considering stepping back to Judaism because it's easier, because it's more comfortable, because it's what they know, because they can get their lives back, um, he says it doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't go back to the old when the new is there. The old is already obsolete. Um, and and it's, it, you're basically, he says, what you're doing, it's like if there's a destination on a road that you're headed to, what you're basically doing is you're leaving the destination to go hang out back at the, at the sign. You're going to hang out at, at what basically the Old Testament was. The Old Covenant was just a pointer to Jesus. And so you're leaving the actual destination and you're just going back to the, to the road sign. The pointer that's telling you how to get there. Um, and, and so that's foolishness. Now, so he, he'll line up a number of different ways where Jesus is better than angels. And Jesus is better than um, the, the uh, Moses. And he's better than... The, the priesthood, he's been on all these things, but here's, here's what you need to kind of catch from, maybe you've noticed this, maybe you've not. From chapter 4 all the way until last week, it's all been Jesus and the high priesthood. So from, four, from, the, from like midway through last semester until now, we've actually been talking about how Jesus' high priesthood is better than that of the Old Covenant, which makes sense because the high priest is the focal point, the key figure in the ongoing covenant relationship between um, God and His people Israel because that's the one who goes and focuses, um, that's the one who goes between God and the people. That's the one who offers the sacrifice. That's the one who is the mediator of the covenant. And so that's why the, the writer wants to focus so much time there. And he breaks it down into different themes. He's a better high priest because he lives forever, unlike the other one. So we got to focus on Christ's eternality. And then he offers a better sacrifice is where we've been for the last few weeks a little bit, namely himself and not the blood of bulls and goats. Um, we get to talk about how Jesus goes through a more perfect tabernacle that is the real one in heaven, the throne room of God, and not just the shadow, the copy that the old one was. And so all these things that we've kind of broken down to, here's where we are now. After talking about all of this, um, Hebrews is divided up into exposition, that is, preaching an explanation of a given topic or text, and then exhortation, that is, encouragement to move forward and do something based on what I just told you. So he bounces back and forth for a while, but 1 through 10 is primarily exposition. And now, tonight's text is the hinge that is going to swing us out of primarily exposition and primarily teaching um, into an exhortation. And this then is what, this, what we're going to basically see is, this is what you do with everything I've been told, telling you for the last 10 chapters. All right. So this is the swing, and we'll see a little bit of exposition and a little bit of exhortation mixed together, and then it kind of swings us into his kind of final charge to them. Next week we get into the famous chapter, Hebrews 11, um, that, that so many of you are probably familiar with already, but that's where we are. Um, open up into chapter 10, verse 19. Um, I'm going to have, let's see here. I'll actually, Bree, you want to be our reader? Okay, I'm going to have you read nice and loud. Um, read verses, nine, just the first two verses, 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence in the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. All right. Um, so th what, what Bree just read is basically the summary of the last seven or eight chapters in a little, in a sense. Therefore, brothers, in light of this, that, that we have confidence to enter the most holy place. That's everything we've been talking about recently, right? Jesus gives us confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of His covenant, through um, His flesh, the curtain He calls, um, basically referencing that curtain that separated the, the most holy place from the rest of the people and that no one else could go in through by the high priest. In light of all that, he says, and what he's going to do is he's going to give three different commands, three different exhortations that are all marked by these two words, let us. Yeah. 
all right? Um, so you'll see them here, I guess, if, if Bree's reading the, the same translation as me, um, then you'll, you'll get to see them here. So three different lettuces, listen, not lettuces as in, you know, the vegetable for salad, <laughs> but um, three let us phrases, all right? So see if you can catch those as she reads verses 22 through 25. All right. Three things. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. That's verse 22. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another on to love and good deeds. The first one, let us draw near with a true heart. That is, obviously, let us draw near to God through Jesus. Um, let us, we have the ability now through Jesus, he just said in the past few verses, so let's do it now. Take, take advantage of that and draw near. And he not only says, let us do it with a sincere heart, that is that you, you're not just kind of grabbing onto Jesus as fire insurance. And I'm not totally sure if I'm all in on this, if I get all this, but, but I mean, just, just to kind of cover my bases, I'll do that. Um, he says, no, no, with a sincere heart and full assurance that I am placing all my faith in him. I am placing all my trust in him. Everything depends on this. If he moves, I fall over. That's how much I'm leaning on Jesus in this. And, and so we're doing that with a sincere heart. And then he gives kind of the means. He said, with hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water. That's not something that he's telling them to go do now. He's saying that's, that's something that's already happened. Or for those of you who are on the, on the edge, maybe he's saying you need to go do this. But heart sprinkled clean, he's already said that's what Jesus does for us. Um, that the law could never do. It could only sprinkle and clean the outside of us. But, um, but Jesus cleans our heart from those um, wicked things inside. And then he says this, um, bodies sprinkled clean. Um, bodies cleansed with water. And we don't know exactly. There's, there's allusion to ceremonial washing that takes place specifically for the priests in the Old Testament. But it, it does seem to be a bit of an allusion to baptism. And there's some scholars who want to push against that and say, no, 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 he can't mean that there because they're just nervous to see any sort of call to baptism in the New Testament. But, but it appears to be kind of a talking through that, that with our hearts sprinkled clean and with the interest of baptism, he's not saying, go do these things. He's saying, Jesus is the one who enables these things in you. When you do this, when you give your heart to Him, when you trust in Him, then He allows you to do this. Number two, He says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Confession being kind of a teaching. Um, so let us hold fast to the teaching that we've been given about who Jesus is and about His gospel. This confession that Jesus is Lord, that He is the way. You could maybe even say the confession of our hope is Hebrews 1-10. through 10. Everything I've told you so far, hold fast to that. And then this, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds. Um, that's a good reminder to us in this, that, that this is not actually just a calling to a bunch of, of individuals. So the writer of Hebrews would not stand up here and say, Okay, Bree, make sure you hold on to Jesus, and Brandon, make sure you hold on to Jesus, and, and um, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm blanking on everybody's names right here. Anybody here, Eric, and anybody here, um, hold on, hold on to Jesus. He, he wouldn't come to a bunch of individuals. He would do actually what I'm doing right now and say, you, plural, hold on to Jesus, and that means that you have a responsibility for one another. That, that it's not just every man or woman for himself. You have responsibility to make sure that we're holding fast and that we're moving forward and that we're clinging on to the hope that is found in Jesus. Interesting, this is our one explicit um, command in the New Testament to go to church. Um, it's actually not mentioned all that much in the Bible. Um, not because it's not important, but just because actually most people, just as, most Christians couldn't imagine not doing that. It's like, why, why wouldn't I do that? But it was only in times like this when, when life started getting hard and when he says this, as you see the day approaching, um, hold on even more as you see the day approaching. Um, we, we, have, we actually have some theories that um, Jesus talked about in Luke 21 and in Matthew 24. 
um, that, that the day would come, and, and he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but he also seems to be talking a little bit about the end day, like the, the, the final day of judgment. Um, the day in the, in, in the Bible, all the way going back to the prophets, usually references the day of judgment. And, and he talks about how that day would come. The church, from what we can tell, what, wasn't sure yet if the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 21, was the same as or different as the, the end of like the end of the age, the end of history, which is also, it appears to be a little bit of what Jesus is talking about in those texts. He appears to be talking about two things, but they didn't know if they were both coming together or how quickly that would happen. And so it seems like there may have been some disillusion in the church that we've been hanging on here and, and the truth is we're getting our butts kicked and, and life is hard and, and I'm struggling here and this doesn't seem to be going the way I, I thought and I thought maybe Jesus was coming back a lot sooner than this and so it seemed like some people started to kind of dwindle off and maybe um, show up less and less, get less and less um, interested in coming together as a group to worship and, and devote ourselves to Jesus. So he says, no, don't stop. Hold on, especially as you see the day approaching. Even if we don't know exactly when that is, we know every day it's one step closer. So, so move forward in that. Bree, read verses 26 and 27. All right. Um, it says, if we go on deliberately sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, in your table groups, we ask this question. How do you square that verse up with chapter 10, verse 14, which says this, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So 10.14 seems to imply there is no running out of this sacrifice. In fact, I believe that's true. We talked about it last week. The sacrifice never runs out. That's the point of Hebrews, is that it doesn't have to be offered over and over again every year, just like it did in the Old Covenant. No, Jesus' sacrifice, once for all time, cleanses us. So then how does he say in the very next chapter, there's no more sacrifice left for these people? If they tend to, if they, if they deliberately keep on sinning after they receive a knowledge of the truth. First, I would say this, contextually, what deliberately keep on sinning seems to mean, in light of what the book of, Jesus, uh, of Hebrews is about, is um, to deliberately keep on sinning is to reject Christ, specifically. Not saying that other things aren't sin, but this is the sin he has in mind, is that you're rejecting Christ and trying to go back, trying to get to God by some other way. Um, so, so to, to take some other for them, Judaism, but, but any other way to try and get to God outside of Jesus is a rejection of Him. And He says, no sacrifice for sin is left. Jesus' sacrifice lasts forever, but if you've rejected Him, then you've also rejected that sacrifice. And what other sacrifice is there for you, is what He's saying. There is none. You won't, you won't find any other sacrifice, any other way to God outside of Jesus himself. So do not continue to reject him. Verses 28 to 31, Bree. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of the three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which... He was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right. Um, you may have heard this word come up a couple times. It may say dreadful in yours or whatever. Um, terrifying has come up a couple different times. That's not one that makes it into a lot of like Sunday school lessons, that word. Um, <laughs> I never sang any, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, but if it's terrifying to fall into his hands, you know. Um, like it never, it never, uh, he's got the whole world in his hands, but that doesn't finish up with, and that's a terrifying thought, okay? Um, so like we, we just don't talk about this very often. It's not as popular or as comfortable, but, but the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, let's recognize what we're dealing with here, absolute holiness and absolute power and and why would you reject that and don't expect it's it's an argument from lesser to greater which is a, a common a common teaching method of the rabbis back then to argue if this is true of something small how much more true is something big so if this is true if if you rejected the law of Moses 
um, which was really just leading us to Jesus. It was just a pointer. It was only kind of the, the preface for the real story. If you rejected that and you suffered judgment, how much more will you suffer when, when you get to the very Son of God that everything in the Scriptures was pointing to? And so he says that this is a dreadful thing to, to fall into the hands of God and something like that. Um, in chapter 6, so these are the two major, there are a few different warning passages in Hebrews. They're sprinkled, I think there's one in two, there's one in four, and then um, there may be another one, but the two major ones are 6 and 10. These are the two major warning passages, and this is where um, some of the kind of the theological discussion comes in as to, as, as to basically the perseverance of the saints is what we call it, the technical term. And in Hebrews 6, we talked about these three different positions on what is known as the perseverance of the saints. That is, will the saints, will Christians, you and I, is it, um, is it a given that we will persevere and continue in our faith all the way to heaven? Is that assumed? Will that definitely happen or will it not? And so there are three different positions. And the first we said was uh, unconditional election. I'm sorry, not a, I'm, I'm getting my Calvinism mixed up. Um, unconditional perseverance. They just call it the perseverance of the saints. This is a Calvinist doctrine, but... Okay, unconditional perseverance. Um, and this is the view, okay, I'll, I'll just briefly, we already talked about it before, but for those who weren't there, this is the view that um, we don't choose God, we don't choose Jesus, that God pre-chose us. The word is predestined. That, so those who hold to this can't believe that God predestined who would be saved, who would be His, and because none of them actually chose Him, He's the one who chose them. So I didn't choose him, which means I can't unchoose him either. I won't. God will see to it that his choice follows through all to the end. And, and these people would, would say, yes, it's possible for a person to say the prayer or to get baptized or to whatever, accept Jesus in your heart, whatever phrase you want to say, to, to go through those motions and then walk away from that. But if they do, what it shows is, is that they were never really saved in the first place. So this is unconditional perseverance. The second is what's known as free grace doctrine. This is the standard kind of view amongst a lot of um, evangelical laity, maybe I would say. Um, this idea of once saved, always saved. That if you, you, basically, so if this is, you can't choose God, so you can't unchoose Him. This is, you can choose God, but you can't unchoose Him. Once you've said the prayer, once you've been baptized, once you've given your life to Jesus, no matter what happens after that, you will always be saved. It doesn't matter if you become a serial killer. It doesn't matter if you become a Buddhist. You have given your life to Him, and so you will be saved already. You can't unchoose that. That's free grace doctrine. The next last one is conditional perseverance. And this is the idea that, yes, it is strongly likely that Christians will persevere to the end because, after all, they have the Holy Spirit in them working and moving them towards there. But it is, there is a condition that they have to hold on, hold fast, that they have to remain faithful, and that a person can walk away. That is, they can freely choose God, freely choose Jesus, and they can also freely unchoose Him, that they could walk away. It's not, it's not the same what we like to say. Losing your salvation is not like losing your keys. It's not like you look up and, and it's gone one day. It's a deliberate um, rejection of, a deliberate pushing away of those things. Here's where we landed. Um, we believe that two of these things, two of these positions can be justified biblically. Um, fairly strong. It's not to say that, that the third and the other position, the third one, that no, there's no Bible verses behind it, but um, we believe that this first one, conditional perseverance, or unconditional perseverance and conditional perseverance, that there is, that there is truth that, that, that can back up, depending on how you read and interpret the Scripture, and there's disagreements between the two sides, but it is valid to find um, support and evidence for these two things. Both of these two, unconditional perseverance and conditional perseverance, agree on this, that you cannot only have half of Jesus. That is, you can't just say, I want the Savior, I don't want the King. You can't say, I want the get me out of hell part, but not the tell me what to do with my life part. Okay, both of these sides agree on this. 
So this one would say, if you try to do that, it means you never really accepted him in the first place. And this side would say, that could be true. Or it could be that you at some point accepted him and then at some point rejected him. But both of these believe that you can't do that. Free grace believes that you can actually be... People in this camp would actually say you can be a believer without being a disciple. That that's an actual statement. You can be a believer without being a disciple. And I believe that in the Bible those two things are the same. And you can't be one without the other. And so both of these are kind of positive. This is where we land on conditional perseverance, that it is possible to walk away. And one of my major reasons for that is the text that we just read. Um, Because of what he says in verse 29. Um, I'll read it to you again real quick. Um, How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. So he seems to be talking, this is a person who has been sanctified by the blood of Jesus, and now they are trampling on Jesus. And now they are treating that same blood as profane. And he says, there's, there's no sacrifice left in that. If you reject Jesus and his sacrifice, then only punishment is left. Um, for some of you, the wheels are spinning, and this is your first time that you got to hear this, and, and you've got all kinds of questions and, and arguments in your head right now. Um, we'd love to talk to you afterwards, seriously, but I'm going to move on real quick. Read verses 32 to 34. Alright, um, the author has used a number of different motivations in this to, to, to spur them towards this kind of life. He's talked about the motivation of everything that Jesus gives you, everything you have in Jesus. Look at this. Look at how he opens up the way to God. Look at all he is. Look at all he's done. So he uses that as motivation. He uses words like terrifying as motivation. Um, so he's not, he's not against using fear. If fear is a valid thing, we ought to be scared, he says, of, of ending up in God's judgment. Not, and not, that is not to say, again, I don't want you to hear that every Christian needs to be freaking out all the time, that they might end up falling out of this stuff. That's not the way, you're going to see it here in just the end, that's not the way the writer of Hebrews sees it. But he says that people who are, um, people who are pushing against God, people who are rejecting Him, there's reason to be scared in that who are rejecting Jesus Christ, his son. There's, there's reason. We, so he uses fear as a motivator. He uses this. We hold on to him uns, um, unswervingly because he is faithful to us. So he uses God's character as motivation. Here he uses experience and memory. And he says, do you remember what it was like at the beginning? Do you remember how you went through all kinds of stuff at the beginning? You, you faced persecution. You were losing your property. You were, some of you were getting thrown in jail, and you were going and visiting those people in jail. And so he says, just remember that amidst, amidst all the difficulty and amidst all the suffering, you were, you were holding on, and you loved it. And he used this term like joyfully accepting, which, which is a crazy idea. Um, get to that in just a second. But he, we, don't, we don't know exactly what he's referring to when he says these things. Um, later he'll say that you haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood, which means we don't think that there's been like any major, any like martyrs in this church yet. Um, we told you at the beginning that we do think this is a church in Rome, more than likely, and we know this, that in uh, 49, in AD 49, the Emperor Claudius had gotten tired of the Jewish population in the city of Rome, and largely we... we, we have some explanation, some reason to believe, largely because of the introduction of Christianity into Judaism, the introduction of the Christian faith into uh, the Jewish population caused a lot of turmoil. And, and so you had Jews who were angry at the Christian Jews, and there was causing problems, and, and that was causing a larger problem in Rome. And so in 49 AD, he kicks them out. He kicks all the Jews out of 
um, out of Rome, and, and we read about in Acts, Aquila and Priscilla, if you know those names, they were actually Jewish Christians who got kicked out of Rome and ended up in Corinth. That's where Paul meets them for the first time. And so it could be this, for AD 49 that he's talking about, in, in which the Christians would have been facing persecution from their own Jewish brothers and sisters and also from Rome themselves. And we do know this, that when this happened in Alexandria, when the Jews got kicked out, that the rest of the population swarmed in and just looted everything in their, in, in their part of town, looted all their homes and houses. And so that seems to fit even with this idea um, that their property was taken away. But he says this, that they, um, that they were able to, and this is just even crazy to put your mind around, joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Joy, like, like people were stealing stuff from them and they, they were not only like able to handle that, they were like handling that with joy and happiness and gladness as people were looting their homes um, because, they, because they knew that they had found something greater than all of that. That's what he says in verse 34 and this is really going to be a theme that is going to carry us into chapter 11 next week. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Here's why. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. And so there's something better. And so we're able to be okay with this. That is chapter 11 in a nutshell. We'll see. Um, read 35 through 39. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if you shrink back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. All right. I, I told you in, in uh, well, first of all, he uses a quote here at the end. It's Habakkuk 2, but it seems to be almost kind of a blend with Habakkuk 2, verses 3 through 4, and then Isaiah 26, 20 and 21 seems to kind of mix in there a little bit as well, that he's kind of quoting these two things together um, to call them to this. But I mentioned to you in Hebrews 6 that, he has some strong warning statements about falling away from God and being careful about that. But if you go back and read Hebrews 6, or if you remember, he closes with some very encouraging words. That he says, we have better hopes for you. We have better things in mind for you that, that, it's going to, that this is not going to be your story. And he does the same thing in 10. So whenever the writer of Hebrews brings um, this strong warning of judgment, this strong warning of falling away, he always ends with uh, a word of encouragement. He says here, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And, and this is why I think so, because he, he doesn't, as I said, believe that every Christian is teetering and on the verge of, of falling away from Jesus, or if they sin one time, or if they sin ten times, then that puts them out of God's grace. No, he has taken pains to say that God's grace, that the grace that is offered through Jesus is huge and covers our entire life. And not only that, that we have Jesus with us in these things as a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And so we, he knows what we went through, and he's able to um, he's able to, to hear us and, and plead on our behalf to the Father when we're struggling. So with all that in mind, the writer of Hebrews is able to say, yes, you don't want to fall back on those things. He said, but that's not going to be us, brothers and sisters. He says, I, I trust because of the high priest we have, because of the joy that you can have in Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is in you, that you are able to follow through on these things. And, and as, much as, as much as the writer wants to give warning about apostasy, he also strongly falls on the side of believing that God and His faithfulness um, enables us as Christians to not have to live in a fear of that or an absolute terror of all those things because we have this great high priest who has gone before us and who, who is in the throne room of God and allows us to go with Him in our time of need. So that's Hebrews 10. Scott will get up to kind of break down a specific uh, section of that in just a moment. Take a minute to stand up, stretch, whatever. Sorry, I love you all. I, I just missed the first 15 minutes. Okay. Um, so we've got divine, human, external, internal. And these affect the decisions we make. Um, A, divine and external being the Bible. Divine and internal being the Holy Spirit. External and human being um, government or, or society or social pressures or 
parents, teachers, professors, colleges. And then human and internal would be, and someone said conscience. So conscience interesting. So, so recognize that the further down here, the more human it is. The closer it gets up here, the more divine it is. And there's, there's, some, there's some gray. There's some blending, right? Um, what would be another one that may be purely human and internal? Okay. Well, what? Hunger. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That is hunger an emotion? I guess. Would hunger be an emotion? Class, it is. Somebody. I don't know. You guys are smart. Okay. Hunger drives emotions. Uh, so emotions, hunger. I guess metabolism. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So that will affect. You know, these are internal things that will affect your decision making. So here, here's here's the point. And, and a couple weeks ago, I talked about um, I, ca- I talked about ethnocentrism, and, it, and and basically I said a similar thing that I'm saying tonight that I will say tonight, um, using different words. But ethnocentrism is this idea that we that we judge another culture based solely on the way our culture sees things, based solely on our values and our standards. So I judge a Middle East culture. Because of my own, well, it's not like America, so it must be wrong, you know, or it's not like our culture, so it must be wrong. Um, that's ethnocentrism. And what I, what, the point I was driving at was that all of us, that every culture that's ever existed is, is, is offended at some level by God's truth. And, and God's truth confronts every culture at some point, maybe in different points. And I talked about a couple, a couple different cultures and how the gospel affects uh, different cultures and affects, like they may accept certain things really easily and other, other parts they may reject. You know, we, we, accept, um, we accept God's grace and forgiveness really easy, have difficult time with God's judgment, His wrath. So you go to a Middle East culture where like judgment and wrath, yeah, no problem. <laughs> Forgiveness and grace? What are you talking about? God? So, so they have issues, and, 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 and they see things differently. And, and what's, what, what I was arguing for, what I was trying to um, talk through was that we need something that's transcultural. We need, we need a standard that rises above every culture so that we can, one, so they can confront us when we're wrong, we can hold, that it can actually hold us to something um, truthful, and we believe God's standard is that standard. And so I was challenging you to embrace God's standard, His Word, because it's the only thing that will be honest with you. It's the only thing that will um, deal with your own prejudices and your own uh, ethnocentric ideas. And, and so we need God's standard to do that. And so the goal for a believer is, is to work from making decisions that are human-based to making decisions that are based on God's standard, that are, that are, that are divine, that, are, that, that you believe come from um, His Word, um, His Spirit, um, His people. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of what we're wanting to work for, work toward. Okay, so that was, I wanted to talk through that because I think that's interesting that that he's challenging, the author is challenging the people in, in Hebrews, and he's reminding them of some things, and, and he's, he's already told them several times, the word, God says this, okay, and you need to be reminded of what God has said so that you can make a decision, make the right decision now for him. And he, he does similar kinds of things in our text, but the two, the two, the two things, the two things, I, the two ideas I want to highlight from this text um, that I think will help you um, begin to grow in making decisions based on what God wants, and not based on necessarily what um, culture would would tell you, or 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 even your own desires. Um, so, two things I think will will be helpful. The first one will will heavily influence the second one, but the second one is really kind of where I want to go. But we need the first. So the first one is this, that God is not tame. He's not tame. He, so check out what he says here 
This is interesting what the author says about God, referring to someone who is deliberately rejecting Jesus. He says, um, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again it says, The Lord will judge his people, and that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So, um, right off the bat, we have to go, whoa, 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 I don't, I don't know if I like this. We have to sometimes be honest. Again, this is the, this is the, this is the aspect of God that, that our culture it rubs against us sometimes. We, we readily accept His forgiveness and grace and, and mercy. Like, yeah, God should be that way. You know, he, He's smarter than we are. He should put up with us. We readily accept that kind of stuff, and we rub up against this, this wrathful side of God, this, this, this God that's going to deal with sin. And, and yet the Bible describes him that way. And so right off the bat, we've got to go, okay, um, who is God? And, and do I get to determine who that is? Or am I going to accept God's description of himself? And, and, and I love this idea that, that God has an intrinsic identity. That God is who He is, whether you know it or not. Like, whether you know about Him or not, whether you know His characteristics, the characteristics that He has, whether you know them or not, exist and are there. And God actually is, is revealing Himself to us through His Word. And so we get, to, we get to know Him through His Word, through uh, His Spirit, um, through His people, these are the ways that Bible seems to describe God communicating Himself to us, revealing Himself to us, and revealing His will to us is through God's, God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. But God gets to determine all that. He gets to determine who uh, He is, and, and we have the choice. Do we accept His version of Himself, or do we accept, or do we lean towards our version of Him? And, and, and the reality is, if you think through it, the reality is that if God becomes more and more like you, then, then, then you have determined who God is, therefore you have become God to you. Um, and so we, we need a standard that rises above, that, that's outside of us, that, that we can't figure out, that we couldn't come up with, that says, okay, God, this is who you are, you've revealed yourself to us, this is... Um, uh, we, we submit to you, and, and when it comes to the Word of God, that's what we want to do. We want to submit to what it says and not determine, not uh, for us to determine what it means, but to submit to what God is trying to, to, to show and reveal to us. There's, there's one text I want, to, I want to turn to and read that helps me understand <coughs> this a little bit, quite a bit. Actually, Romans 11, if you want to turn there, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Romans 11, and I'm going to let, I mean, I'm going to emphasize certain things, maybe highlight, but I'm going to let this text kind of speak for itself, and th- th- there's, there's a ton that we could have turned to, 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 to see God, this is God's Word, He's, he's describing Himself ultimately, um, and, but I love this doxology that, that Paul kind of ends this section just praising God and describing Him at the same time. He says, Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So, think about the things that God is rich in. Think about something that God is not rich in. You know, think about... Um, think about... Um, it says, Oh, the wisdom... Um, the depth of his wisdom. Like where, where is God unwise? And, and the Bible describes as in, in no area is God unwise. Um, think about his knowledge. What does God not know? And the, the Bible seems to describe God knowing everything. We call that omniscient. 
Um, he says, how, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Um, the NLT says, how impossible it is to understand his decisions and his ways. The NIV says, how unsearchable his judgments and, and his paths are beyond tracing out. So, who can argue with, with his judgments? Like, um, uh, I, I, get, I get, a as a, I guess as a pastor, I get a question like, will, will my Aunt Bertha, or will my dog, or will so-and-so be in heaven? Um, wh- wh- how do you know, will so-and-so be in heaven? You know, they didn't really, but they, they kind of came, and I think they had a cross in their house, and, or, you know, they came to church every week, you know, I, I, so, and, and I love those questions because it gives me an opportunity to go, you know what, I don't know, but you know what, I fully trust the judgment of the one, of the best person, the best one to make that decision is, 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 is God and is Jesus. Um, he will make the right decision, like he knows the heart, he knows the right decision, and I don't, I don't have to question that. There's a lot of freedom that comes in realizing his judgments are perfect. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Um, think about uh, how God thinks at a different galaxy than we think. The Bible seems to describe him that way. Um, think about the, uh, the fact that that nobody, nobody could give him advice. That's what the NLT says. Who could give him advice? Like, what, what advice would you give God? That's a, that's a humbling thought. And, and the Bible seems to describe, there's, there's no one that can counsel. There's no one that can advise God in, in anything. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Like, what, what has somebody given that what could you give God that, that, that somehow He would owe you? And, and there's, there's really nothing. There's, there's nothing that we could give God that He would be, feel obligated to pay us back or to owe us anything. It's all by grace. Every breath we take. Uh, 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. I know this is an obvious statement, but every thing that you can think of fits into all things. So all these things are by purpose and from Him and for Him and all for His glory. He is a living God. He is not tame. And, and the point is, um, everything He asks us to do has a purpose, and it is for our good, it is for uh, His kingdom, and, and it is for the benefit of others, often, if not every time. I can't imagine anything He would ask us to do that wouldn't fit into those categories, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be good for bringing Him glory, that wouldn't be good for benefiting others, that wouldn't be good for bringing joy to you. So anything He would ask you to do, ultimately, is good, which brings to the next one, and I'll read in in uh, Hebrews ten, verse twenty four. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the second one that ultimately. This is the command, as Drew said, this, this is a command to essentially build up the church. To build up the church. Um, to, to, to not neglect meeting together. Um, and so I, I want to talk through this a little bit because I think, there's, I think there's some things that maybe you might be feeling now um, and, and definitely some things that you will feel at some point that I think this is going to speak to. And I want you to remember... Um, one, we need a standard that rises above us, that confronts us when we are lazy, that confronts us when we are wrong, and, that, and when we are thinking about ourselves or w- when we've begun began to believe 
the beliefs of the world. We need a standard, and we need God's standard, and this is God's standard. And clearly throughout the New Testament, there is a, like Drew said, this is the one explicit command. There's actually others that describe you playing a role, you using your gifts, but this is the explicit one that talks about not giving up meeting together. But it's certainly modeled by the church. We'll read it here in a little bit, Acts 2. Um, there's description of it all over the place of Paul talking to the church and talking about how, um, how they are to live out these virtues that can only be lived out in, in community with the, the body of Christ. Not just people in general, but with the body of Christ. And so I want to get into that and, and challenge you with something. So, turn to Acts chapter 2, uh, 242 through 47. I'm just going to read this and let it speak for itself. This is the very first church, and this is the very first church modeling what, what, is, what is to be um, a precedent and, and, and a value and um, an example that, that is consistent with all churches. God's desire for churches. Acts 2, 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and dis- distributing the proceeds to all as he had need, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is, there is that example. There is an example in chapter 4 of this, the church coming together, <laughs> praying for a specific need, sharing, sharing their needs, um, selling their possessions to help take care of each other. Um, there, is, there is this example of the church loving each other and living in community. Okay, now turn to Ephesians chapter 4. There's a, there's a bunch that I could have gone through. I could have gone to 1 Corinthians. It talks about the body and how we are to, each, each part is to do its, each person is to do its part. Each, each person has a gift to be, to be used to, to to um, unite the body. Ephesians is, yeah. Ephesians 4. <coughs> Starting in verse 1. I therefore, uh, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, Raphabat. Paul's in prison. Why is he in prison? Well, because he's been preaching the gospel. He's been, he's been starting churches. Um, he's, he's preaching a gospel that, that rubs up against the world, against Jewish culture, against Gentile uh, beliefs and culture. And, and so, you know, he's ultimately in prison because he, of a false accusation, but, but they've been looking for a reason to do this. But he's also in prison because he loves the church. So I want you to hear that. He risked his life for the church over and over and over. You read through Acts, he was beat up all the time. He, he valued the church and he valued um, the existence of the church. Why? Why did Paul care so much about the church? Maybe we'll talk through that in a little bit. But he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've, you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to, eager to maintain the unity of of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you have, you have these things. You have um, humility and gentleness and patience and, and bearing with one another and, and, and you being uni- unified together in the Spirit. Those are things that, except for that last one, those are things that you can do with other people. But because of the nature of who he's writing to, and, and, and especially because of that last one, unity in the body and in, in, in the Spirit, that can't be done with anyone else other than the church. In fact, you, you can't live out those virtues. Did you know there's over 50-some one-anothers in the Bible? Love one another, serve one another, care for one another. Um, th- these one-anothers are, are not 
to be done. You can't do those actually by yourself. You can't, and I would argue, you can do those with people randomly, but that's not, that's not what it's describing. That's not how it's describing you to live those out. It's, it's, it's describing those in a way that those are be, to be done in a community of people. He's writing to a church, a, a group of people. So, here's, here's the thing. Some of you have accepted this and, and love it, and some of you haven't. Um, and, and, and maybe you jump from Bible study to Bible study, and maybe, maybe you've gotten involved in the church and maybe you haven't. Um, I want to challenge you that, that this is, again, a standard that God, is, that God has called us to. Why? Why would He want us to be so concerned about the church? Why would He want us to be so involved in the church and love the church? Why would Paul risk his life for the church? And I, and I believe the answer is simply because salvation comes through the gospel being shared through the body of Christ, through the church. That, that, that the gospel is, is the answer, but the church is the, the conduit. It, the, the church is the means in which the gospel is preached. The church is the means in which the gospel is displayed, and, and, and God's kingdom is modeled and, and uh, lived out for the world to see. Jesus says, they will know you, they will know me by your love for one another. Like they will know you and they will understand who I am ultimately by your love. For, the way you love one another is huge. And so right now, some, some of you have, have done that. Some of you won't. But I want to talk to you in five years from now or 10 years or 20 years. So I want, I want, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to that version of you right now. I want to talk to the version of you that, that doesn't think, oh, yeah, that, that's a great thing. I, I should do that. Um, I've done that a little bit here, and it's been great. And, and so, of course, I'm going to do that in five years or ten years and twenty years. Let me, let me tell you, there will be a day when you won't want to do that. You won't want to give up your time to pursue the church. Okay? It's similar to a marriage. Some of you, most of you aren't married. A couple of you are. There, is, there will be a t- time, and I've talked to people who've been married 30, 40 years, I've, I've seen this and read this in books. This seems to be the case. This seems to be human nature. There will be a time when everybody's married goes, you know what? I wonder if I made a mistake. I wonder if I chose the wrong person. If I was married to someone like this, man, life would be a lot easier. Every single married person I've talked to who's honest shares that, who's been married a, little, a few years, um, got a few years under their belt. They're, they're, you just come to a point where you go, Wow. I, yeah, that's okay. That's normal. That's like normal marriage is when you come to that point. And, and, and normal married, good, solid married people work through that and go, yeah, the reality is I would feel that way with everybody I married because everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And, and so my commitment to Christ calls me to love through that and to work through that. And actually, God gets glorified because this isn't something I can do. I need his help doing. Similar is your, your relationship with the church. Because in five years, when you are older, and maybe you're married, maybe you have kids, maybe you don't, chances are, if you don't, you're going to feel like um, there's not a real good place for you in the church. Churches, <laughs> churches do a good job of, of meeting people with kids, meeting people who are married, and and, and especially churches in college towns do a good job of meeting college students, but the stage you're entering, entering into is, is kind of this area where the church doesn't do a great job of providing stuff for you. And you've been used to the church like catering to you, like having a house that's been, all the walls have been knocked out, and it's a special place for you to come and to study the Word and to connect and and. And there's ministries at churches that cater, that have budgets, like thousands of dollars that they set aside to just throw on you guys, spend, spend on you guys. And, and there will be a time in the, in, the, in the coming years where churches won't have that. You'll, you'll be at a place where you won't do that. Now, here, here's what I'm wondering. I wonder if you picture that, yeah, I'll, just, I'll go somewhere and I'll find a church like Sunnybrook, or I'll go somewhere and I'll find a church like 
like Life Church, or I'll go somewhere and I'll find a church like my home church, and it'll be awesome. And yet Drew and I and all the ministers on staff, we talk to people who move away, and they move to towns, and they just they are going, man, I can't, it's hard. I, I miss whatever. I miss this and that, and, and they don't have this and that. And, and so I want you to picture the worst-case scenario for you. What would the worst-case scenario be in three years? You take a job somewhere and you move to this town and, there's a, and you start looking for churches and there's, there's not whatever. What's worst case scenario would it be? So I don't know what that is for you. But that's the you I want to talk to. And then I also want to talk to you in about 10 or 20 years, maybe when you have kids and you have all kinds of more responsibilities and you're exhausted and, you're, and you, you, you just start find yourself sitting in the back row of church and you're not really giving your life, um, you're not like sharing your life, you're not wanting to serve because you're exhausted and it's just easier to not get involved because that's just more people I got to, and I'm telling you, there will be a time when you won't want to do that. As a, as a person who does this for a living, there's times when I don't want to go to my small group. I have a life group that meets in my house and I they're coming over whether I like it or not, you know, sometimes. And but honestly, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a sacrificial love sometimes because I recognize that God speaks through his people. And so here's, here's my challenge that I want to challenge you with is so when you think about God speaking to you or God revealing himself to you through his word, through his spirit, through his people, the only way to really receive that is to surrender to it. And, and to give up control. And so I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, um, pursue the church, build up the church, and especially when you don't feel like it. Commit to being involved. Commit to sharing your life. Commit to showing up. Some of you are in table groups and you're doing great because you committed to show up even when you don't feel like it, even when you have stuff to do, but you recognize you know what, this isn't really about me getting something all the time, so I'm going to come and bring what God has given me to offer. And, and oftentimes, when you come with that heart, you, you will receive, and you will, you will take what God has to show you or give you, um, and it'll be good. But I want to encourage you in that moment, 5, 10, 20 years, to do the same thing, to, to pour into the church because it's God's it's God's um, messenger for this for this lost and dying world. It's 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 he the church is uh, the bride of Christ that he loves dearly that he wants to build up and you play a special part in that. And so if you're in a small church with thirty people and you have an old guy named Walter who is a bus driver during the during the week and he preaches on the weekends and his sermons are less less than par and Bertha is playing the piano. And she knows six songs in the hymn, and you know it's going to be one of it's going to be three of those six songs, right? And it's not passion music, it's not David Crowder, okay? It's it's Bertha on the on the piano, people. I don't know Bertha, Ethel, I don't know, whoever. But here's here's what I believe though. Wherever, wherever God has you, there is a body of Christ somewhere for you to be a part of. And you seek God for who that is. And when you find that body and recognize you've got to throw away some things that you may want, but you keep a passion for His church because it's, it's God's way of reaching the world. And you build up, you strengthen the church, and you, you strengthen God's kingdom. But also it's God's way of speaking into your life. And I'm challenging you. Submit to God in that way and accept His standard. So, let me pray and then we will be done. God, I'm thankful for Your standard. I'm thankful that it confronts me. It confronts my selfishness. It confronts my limited perspective. It confronts my... Um, how, e how easy it is for me to just accept these worldly ideas 
and, and your, your truth, your truth confronts that. Your truth um, renews my mind to, your, to, to what you want. And so, God, I ask that in my life that I would continue to submit to your word and your spirit and your people um, for your purposes, for your glory, um, to, to accomplish your um, redemptive and restorative work in the lives of those around us and in this world. And God, may we, may we give control to you in this area. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, stick around. I think we have a life a, a table group, guys' table group that's provided some food, and they've been cooking, actually. They've been here early, and they're in there cooking, so it must be good. Stick around.